0: So much for being here, and uh, we know that there are some of you who are watching online. So thank you for being a part of it. So several years ago, I came across an article um, online about a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, who pastored a very large church, and he was on his way to his office early one morning, and he received a phone call from an agent with the IRS. Uh, she identified herself, she gave him her badge number, and then she proceeded to tell him that he had a bill because of a miscalculation in his taxes for $4,900, that their office had sent him numerous notices and that he had failed to respond, and this was now a criminal matter. He said, I've not received any notices from the IRS, and she said, we actually have video evidence of you receiving a packet uh, from us, and so this matter is now a criminal matter and he said well show me the video evidence he Said, I cannot it's been turned over to the DA in Charlotte and this will be used in the case against you um, and so he immediately thought oh no I'm in big trouble she said you need to hire an attorney and be prepared this is a felony and you need to be prepared for what is to come and so he was ready to retire he had been at this church for over 20 years a large church in Charlotte He had announced his retirement. It would be happening at the end of that year. And he thought, this is going to be so embarrassing for me, for my family, and for my church family. And so he said to this IRS agent, is there any way that I can get this matter resolved today? And she said, I don't think so, but let me check. And so she said, I'm going to put you on the phone with my supervisor. Her her supervisor then came on the phone and said, look, this has been turned over to the DA. However, you can resolve it today But we cannot accept payment either through Visa or through a check. The only way that we can accept payment is through money cards, green dot money cards, that you will have to purchase uh, from a Rite Aid or a Walgreens or a CVS so that we can verify that we have the cash on hand. So he went to his bank and withdrew a large amount of money. Then he went to several different Rite Aids in Charlotte because of the maximum amounts that he could purchase And then he proceeded to give this IRS agent on the other end of the line the numbers from the back of those money cards so they could then have their cash. When the amount got to $16,500, he started to suspect what you're suspecting right now, that it was all a scam, that something was wrong. He hung up the phone. He called an attorney friend of his, and his attorney friend confirmed exactly what he was suspecting. That's not how the IRS operates, and he had been scammed. So i tell you that story to to tell you this. We are in a series called Verified, and we've talked about every week in this series how important it is to know whether something is real or if it is a fake. Uh, It's important to know if you're talking on the phone with someone who is an IRS agent, uh, whether or not that's an actual IRS agent or someone from South America claiming to be an IRS agent. When you get that email, it's important to know whether it is a valid email or if it's someone from Africa claiming to be a Nigerian prince who will help you if you'll just you know, give them your bank account information. It's important to know if you're purchasing something, is it real, is it legitimate, or is it just a fake? If you're reading a news article online, it's really nice to know whether or not you're reading true facts or if it's fake news. We all want to know that what we're reading, that what we're hearing, that what we're buying, it's real and it's not some cheap imitation. And if this is true in life in general, it is even more true in our spiritual lives. Uh, we live in a nation where over half of the people in our nation claim to be followers of Christ. Yet for so <clears throat> many of these people, it is just a label. It is just part of their heritage. It is just a family tradition, but it is not a true Genuine, verified faith. And so we've been in this series and asking this question. How can we know that our faith in Christ is real? How can we know that it's genuine? How can we know that it is a verified faith in Christ? And so our guide for this series has been the little New Testament book called 1 John. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, 1 John's in your New Testament. It's right after 2 Peter, uh, right before uh, the book of 2 John. Uh, 1 John was written by John the Apostle. Uh, John was a close companion of Jesus, spent three years with Jesus while he was on this earth. Uh, John eventually later landed in Ephesus where he pastored the church there. And he wrote this letter we call 1 John to Christians who were living around Ephesus. And he wrote it for a very specific reason. Uh, these Christians had faced a heresy known as Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word gnosis, uh, which means knowledge. And the reason they were called Gnostics is the Gnostics believed that they had acquired this special knowledge or a deeper knowledge about God and about spiritual things. Um, Gnostics took their teaching from a lot of different places. There was some Judaism that was mixed in. uh, A lot of Greek philosophy, especially the teachings of Plato. There were all these different strains of Gnosticism. At its core, Gnosticism taught this. That uh, the material world, the physical world is evil. And the spiritual world is good. Uh, They believed there was this divide between the physical world and the spiritual world. And that one could follow Christ spiritually, but do whatever one wanted to do in the physical body because those two entities were completely separate and one did not affect the other. So John wrote this letter we call 1 John to correct the false teachings of these heretics. And throughout the letter, there were three things that he emphasized over and over and over again one is having the right beliefs about jesus and so if someone claims to be a follower of christ what they claim about christ is essential in other words you cannot just believe whatever you want to believe about jesus and then be a true follower of christ that having the right beliefs is essential the second thing is having the right actions the right moral actions John wrote this because the Gnostics said that I can be a follower of Christ spiritually and be doing what I'm supposed to do spiritually, but then do whatever I want to do with my body because those two are separate. John says, no, you can't do that. You've got to morally live out the teachings that Christ gave us to be a follower of Christ. And if you say, well, I can follow Christ but live any way I want to live... Those two things are incompatible. And then finally, the third criteria that John gives throughout the book is having the right love specifically for Christians. John says this is how we know that we follow Christ because we love other followers of Christ. In the middle of his letter, John gives what is a fourth criteria For knowing whether or not we are followers of Christ. This is chapter 3, the very end. Here's what John wrote. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. So John was likely asked numerous times, Hey John, you, you were with Jesus. You spent a lot of time with Jesus. And there are all these Gnostics who are out there, and what they say sounds good. I mean, they use spiritual language, they use Christian language, they will quote scriptures, it makes sense, they're so convincing, they seem to know what they're talking about, they're very smart, and they are teaching these things that seem to make sense, but John, I don't know, and you are with Jesus, so you ought to know, John, what does it really take to be a follower of Christ? John, how can I know that I am saved? John, how can I know that Jesus lives in me? John said, all right, you want to know? This is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. In other words, here's what John was saying. You can actually have the right beliefs. You believe all the right things. You can morally live the right way. You can either even exhibit love for other followers of Christ, and you're still not a follower of Christ. Why Because the test, the ultimate test, is knowing by the Holy Spirit of God residing within us. Now, I get it. This is a little more nebulous. I mean, I can can test whether or not someone has the right beliefs by asking them questions. We can observe their life and see whether or not they have the right actions. We can see how they treat others and observe whether or not they're exhibiting love for other Christians. How can I test to know if you have the Spirit of God? Well, it's hard, but in the next section, John says, hey, here are some evidences that someone has the Holy Spirit. And that's what he covers in the first part of chapter 4. Again, if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there. It's chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here's what John wrote. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here John says, look, not every spirit is from God. Now John is not necessarily referring here to those who are possessed by demons. Uh, He, towards the latter part of this section, will say, yes, the source is demonic activity, but he's talking about a human spirit residing within someone. He is talking about a spirit coming from their own human desires and own human thoughts rather than coming from the Spirit of God. And here's what John was saying. Look, there are all these false teachers that are operating around Ephesus. And John says, I get it. They sound Christian. They seem to be Christian. They have accepted the label of Christian, but what they are teaching does not come from the Spirit of God. It comes from their own desires, their own thoughts, their own very worldly worldview." It comes from within them, but it does not come from God. It is a humanistic perspective, not the perspective of God. If you were here with us the very first week that we started this series, I talked about progressive Christianity. It is a fairly new phenomenon that we are seeing in churches. Uh, Those who label themselves as progressive Christians have a lot of very different beliefs, like Gnostics, it's it's very. There are different ideas they have. However, at their core, progressive Christians say that Jesus did not come to earth to save us. That is one of their core teachings. They say that Jesus came to earth rather to tell us that we are saved. Uh, They say that there's no separation between us and God and that Jesus came to earth to tell us that we are already accepted by God. They go further to say that Jesus was never raised from the dead because there was no point for Jesus to be raised from the dead since Jesus did not die for our sins, since it was not necessary for Jesus to die for our sins because God has already accepted us. That is a core teaching of progressive Christianity. Uh, I Came across a blog about a uh, from a guy who is a self-proclaimed progressive uh, Christian blogger. He's a very good writer, a very intelligent guy. I've seen videos. He is a very good speaker. Uh, This this individual named Colby Martin uh, on his blog answered the question, "Why did Jesus have to die?" Uh, This was right about Easter, and so those who followed his blog said, "Hey." You don't say that Jesus died for our sins, then why did Jesus die? Here's what he wrote. "There is no separation between us and God. Never was. But religion insists there is, and then all it offers a way to bridge the gap and then it can co- controls who can cross the bridge. Why did Jesus die? That's the question he was asked. Why did Jesus die? To expose religion as the stumbling block it is, hindering the full flourishing of humanity. So, the question was asked to him, why did Jesus die? He says, Jesus died to expose religion for being false and a hindrance to the full flourishing of humanity. You mean Jesus did not die for our sins? No, he would say, because there is no separation between us and God, and there never was. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's sort of, I can live any way I want to because there's no separation between me and God. The only problem with what Colby Martin wrote is that there are those who have gone before us who very much disagree with this. I'll give you an example. A guy named Isaiah very much disagreed with this idea. Because Isaiah wrote, But but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Well, I thought there was no gap between us and God. No, Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from God. They have hidden His face from you. There are others who disagree with what Colby Martin wrote. Like Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon said, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So Solomon You're saying there is this path that seems right to me. Yes. Well, should I follow that? Well, no, in the end it leads to death. There are others who disagree. A guy named Peter who was very close to Jesus, this Jesus that Colby Martin's talking about. Acts 3, Luke says that Peter said this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Wait a second, Peter. Peter. Why do we need to repent if there's no separation between us and God? What are we repenting of? Well, Peter says you're repenting so that your sins may be wiped out. I didn't think I had to have my sins wiped out. No, you do. Peter, who was with Jesus, very much disagreed with Colby Martin. Paul, who spent time with Jesus, very much disagreed and said, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins wait a second, Paul, I thought there was no separation between us and God. I thought sin was not an issue. No, if Christ was not raised from the dead, you are still separated from God and your faith is worthless. Paul happens to disagree with what Colby Martin wrote. There's one other individual that very much disagreed with what what Colby Martin wrote about why Jesus came. That individual is named Jesus. And Jesus in John 3.18 said, whoever believes in him, talking about himself, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Wait a second, Jesus. I thought there was no condemnation. I thought that this was, there was no separation between us and God. Jesus, this doesn't make sense. If there's no separation, then how can anyone stand condemned? Now Jesus said, well... They are, and that's why I came, so that those who believe in me are not condemned. Because of the sin issue, though, those who do not believe stand condemned. Just like in John's day, there are those who will use the label Christian, but what they teach does not come from the Spirit of God. It comes from their own ideas, and it is a very humanistic perspective. And John here says to those Christians, do not believe it. Do not believe it if it does not line up with the Spirit of God. And he fleshes this out more in verse 2. Here's what we read. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. Okay, so the word Antichrist there is not the Antichrist at the end of time. John here is talking about the spirit of the Antichrist. Those forces opposed to Christ and the teachings of Jesus that are in the world coming against the teachings of God. And here John gives a test for Christians to know whether or not a teaching is from God or it is from, uh, it is from the world or from the spirit of the Antichrist. Here's the test. If someone acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then they are from God. If they do not acknowledge that, then they are not from God. And you're probably thinking, what's that all about? You know, why was that a big deal? There was a strain of Gnosticism known as Docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or appear. And the Docetists taught that Jesus only appeared to come in the flesh, but was really in actuality only a spirit. Remember, Gnostics believed at their core that the spiritual world is good and the physical world is evil. The Docetists said, then, by logic... There's no way that God, who is all good, could have come in the flesh, which is inherently evil. He only came as a spirit. And they said that he was a very good spirit in the sense that he looked real. That it, that it fooled even the apostles who were very close to Jesus. However, he was only a spirit. And when Jesus walked on this earth, he was only a spirit. When he went to the cross... He only appeared to die, but a spirit can't die, so he looked like he died. He never actually rose from the dead because he was never dead. When he appeared to his apostles, he was just a spirit who had been around the whole time. And he's appearing to the apostles looking like he's in the flesh, but he was really only a spirit. John here says, if they are teaching that, understand that does not come from God, but from the spirit of the Antichrist. A couple things are important for us here. One, what you believe about Jesus really matters. John makes it super clear that having the right beliefs about Jesus makes a huge difference. You cannot create the Jesus that you want to create and then believe that the Jesus that you have created is your path to salvation. If you create a God and then worship that God, you've created a nice little religion, but not a path to salvation. All you've done is invented a new religion. Congratulations, way to go. See if you can get some followers for you and your new religion. But that's it. It's not based on truth. John here says, what we be- believe about Jesus is really important. But here's the second thing. The word that John uses here for acknowledge is more than just intellectually acknowledging truth about Jesus. That word for acknowledge signifies that I am staking my life on what I believe. In other words, there are, there are truths that I believe, but I, I don't stake my life on that belief. In fact, there, there are truths that I believe are factually true, but I hate those truths. John says you can do the same thing when it comes to following Christ. You can intellectually believe all the right truths about Jesus, but you have never acknowledged and staked your life on those truths. This word here has a sense of a humble submission to that truth. So from the outside, I can look at a truth and I can say, that is true, but that does not change my life in any way. Or I can say, I believe that is true and I am putting my life under that truth and it makes all the difference in the world and how I live. Let me give you a great example. James, in his letter, talked about the difference in intellectually believing a truth and in submitting your life to that truth. Here's what he wrote in James chapter 2. He said, you believe that there is one God. We could add to this. You believe that Jesus came as the Son of God to die on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day from the dead. You believe those as true facts? Good. Even the demons in hell believe that. And they shudder because they understand that it means their ultimate demise. James here is very clear that it is more than just intellectual assent. But it is a heart that is submitted and has been changed because of that truth. Okay, then verse 4. Here's what John wrote. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, them being the the spirit of the Antichrist or the teachings of the world. By the way, that word for overcome, if you want to underline it or circle it, that is the Greek word that the company Nike comes from. Nikeo is the word there. And so it carries with it a sense of victory. It It is John here saying, you have victory over them. You have overcome them. You have won the battle. Why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Underline that. John here gets very pastoral in nature. And instead of just teaching truth to them and saying, Hey, here are the things that you need to know. John here gets very practical and says, There is one in you who is greater than the one who is in the world. And because you have that spirit residing in you, you have overcome the world. Why does John do that? It is because for these Christians, what they were struggling with was a very practical matter. This was not just an intellectual exercise. This was not these Christians saying to John, hey, there are Gnostics who are teaching this, and there's this kind of, funny little strain of docetists who are teaching this other thing and there are all these teachings floating around and John we're trying to have this debate and we're wanting to know what is true. Can you clarify it for us? It was so much more than that. These Christians were living in the Roman world which was incredibly evil. I mean we sometimes think, oh, it would be nice to have lived in biblical times, you know, when everything was easy and and there weren't all these temptations we face today. You know, they didn't have Netflix with all these shows on it that were so awful. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have the internet and all these things come up and suddenly you're struggling because of these things that you're looking at. Wouldn't it have been easy to have lived in biblical times? Except in the Roman world, it was incredibly immoral, highly sexualized. And so these fairly new followers of Christ were saying to John, living out our faith. It's hard. In this culture, in this awful, evil world, it is hard for us to follow Christ. And John, we just have to be honest with you. These Gnostics, they say that we can follow Christ and then do whatever we want to do in our flesh. And John, we think they're wrong, that that's not the way that we ought to live. But man, it's sure tempting to buy into that. Because of all the temptations that are around us, it is hard, hard, hard to live out our faith. And John says, I know. I've been there. I understand. But as your pastor, let me give you this assurance. It is not the battle that you have to fight on your own. Why is that, John? Because the one who lives in you is greater than the one who lives in the world. And because of the spirit that God has given you, you can win the battle against these temptations. I'm reading a biography right now on Charles Spurgeon. If you're not familiar with that name, he was a very famous pastor in the late 1800s in London. Uh, He was at that time in Western Christianity the most famous name. Uh, He was called the Prince of Preachers and arguably the greatest preacher of that century. Uh, in this biography, it tells the story of his salvation experience. Um, he was living in a little town about 50 miles outside of London, and he had been struggling with his sin um, for, for a, a lot of months. Uh, he was about 15 years old, and he writes about how it was just this constant battle for him, and he wanted to be this good person, but he just couldn't do it. And just for months and months and months, he was having this struggle. One wintry Sunday morning, he went into this little Methodist church. He said there were only about 15 people in the church. And so he, he slipped into this pew in the back and he sat there and waited for the pastor to get up. But evidently the snow had been so, uh, such a large uh, fall of snow that the pastor was snowed in and couldn't make it. So this layperson got up and he said this was an uneducated guy who really could barely read. But the guy got up, and he read from Isaiah 45, 22, where God, through Isaiah, says, Look unto me, and you will be saved. Look unto me, and you will be saved. And he said the guy talked for only about five minutes. It was about all that he could come up with for the sermon. But he got to the end of the sermon, and he looked at a young Charles Spurgeon who was seated on the back row of this tiny little sanctuary, and he said, Young man, you look miserable. You absolutely look miserable. Look unto Jesus and you will be saved. Look unto Jesus and you can find joy. Look unto Jesus and you will find what you're looking for. And Charles Spurgeon said, I knew that he was exactly right. I was just what he said. I was miserable in my sin. I had no joy in my life and I knew that what he was saying was exactly what I needed to do to look unto Jesus and I would be saved. And Charles Spurgeon said he was saved there in that little Methodist church and he left that day and he said he could walk three feet above the ground after he left That this massive burden had been lifted off his shoulders That this joy that he had never experienced before filled his life. Then he went on to say, I mistakenly thought that after that experience that I would no longer be attacked by Satan and by sin, the way I had before. He said, boy, was I wrong. He said, those attacks only intensified. The temptations only became stronger. That battle only seemed to become even more fierce. He said, however, even though the battle continued to rage, he said, I had living within inside me the spirit of Jesus Christ And it wasn't me fighting these battles on my own. But it was God's grace giving me the opportunity to overcome this sin. And he said, because of the one living in me, I was able to overcome the temptations of the world. That is exactly what John is driving at in this passage. He wanted his readers to understand very very clearly that they did not have to walk around as defeated individuals as men and women who had been defeated by sin and beat down by temptation because the Spirit of Christ living within them was greater than the one who lived in the world and that through Jesus they could have victory over sin. Finally, John wraps up this section with another test, a way to know whether someone is from God or from the world. Here's what he wrote. They are from the world... "...those with the spirit of the Antichrist, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. However, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood." So John here says, "...whoever is not from God does not listen to us." Who is the us he's talking about there? He is specifically referring to the apostles. The writings of the apostles, which you and I call the New Testament, by this point had been widely circulated. Uh, When you read the New Testament, understand this, you are either reading letters that were written or gospels that were written, narratives that were written by those who walked with Jesus and spent time with Jesus or those who worked under those who had spent time with Jesus. I'll give you an example. Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Mark was not an apostle. He was not one of those who walked with Jesus for three years. But Mark studied under Peter. Some people have called Mark's Gospel the Gospel of Peter. It was the life and teachings of Jesus from the perspective of Peter, who was a first-hand witness to everything that happened. Mark's gospel and the other letters of the New Testament had been widely circulated by this point. So John was saying very, very clearly, if what they are saying lines up with these writings that you have, the letters that you have, what the apostles have taught, if it lines up with that, then it's from the Spirit of God. If it does not, then it is from the Spirit of the world. Here's what John is saying in this passage. Go back to what we've talked about this whole time. Having the right beliefs, having the right actions, and having the right love. John says these are tests on whether or not to know uh, know whether or not someone is truly a follower of Christ. However, we need to understand that at the end of the day, this is a spiritual issue. Not just the practical issue of having the right beliefs, having the right actions, or having the right love. John here wants his readers very much to understand that this is a spiritual battle. That this is a spiritual battle at its core. Which means that maybe some of you here today are saying, right now I'm having a struggle with having the right beliefs. Right now I'm really struggling with believing whether or not the things that I read in the Bible, the things that I have been taught, the things that I have believed for years... Whether or not those are true and valid. And John would say, you know what, I understand that. But know this, that is not just an intellectual battle. It is a spiritual battle as well. Or many of you may say, I'm having a real struggle with sin right now. I mean, there are some sins that have captured my heart and captured my mind. And living out my faith is a real struggle right now. John would say, man, I get it. I understand that. But that is more than just a battle of the will. It is more than just a moral issue. It is a spiritual issue in your life. And you may say, I'm having a real struggle right now with loving some Christians. I mean, I'm having a major uh, deal with some followers of Christ. And it's, it's hard. It's caused all kind of heartache in my life. Exhibiting that love is really hard right now. And John would say, I understand. I understand what you're going through. However, you need to know this. This is not just a relational issue. It is a spiritual issue as well. And what you and I need to do is to recognize that there is a spiritual battle that is happening whenever we are facing temptation or whenever we are facing these intellectual issues or whenever we are facing relationship issues. There is a spiritual battle that is raging. And here's what John would say. Take heart, take heart, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The one who's teaching false beliefs or trying to get you to believe false beliefs, greater is he that is in you than the one who is trying to get you to believe that. The one who is tempting you with sin, greater is he that is in you than the one who is tempting you with sin. The one who's trying to destroy your relationships, greater is he that is in you than the one who is trying to destroy your relationship with other followers of Christ. So what's the answer? What's the answer for me and you? It is to fill our lives more and more with the one who has overcome the world. And that way we can win these battles.